Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to Business Thinking Radio. I'm Ram Ayer, your host and chief business thinker at the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. This particular podcast is longer than usual. As a lead up to today's podcast, let me provide some context for you. It will help you see why today's podcast is extremely important to your future and that of your children and grandchildren. There are 7.3 billion people in the world. And that number will reach 10 billion by 2050. Each of these people need to have some kind of an income in order to be productive members of society. The current education system prepares people to work for companies. That's the supply side of people needing to earn a living. The rate of business creation is going down across the world. So with increased automation and the growth of artificial intelligence, businesses will need fewer employees to generate the same revenues. That's the demand side of things for people. Simple problem. Supply continues to exceed demand. Millions of people will not find jobs and have to enter the gig economy where they will be in business for themselves. But most people have never been in business for themselves. They do not know how. The education system does not prepare individuals to be solopreneurs. How can they acquire the requisite skills? The Business Thinking Institute in Princeton surveyed successful and unsuccessful business people. We found that being business-minded and having business savvy are essential for business success. But how can one learn to become more successful at business thinking and therefore business? Nations, states, and cities are encouraging entrepreneurship, but an essential and often overlooked requirement for business success is business thinking. People seeking promotions need more business savvy. Business owners seeking greater success require greater business savvy. There are countless MBAs across the world who lack the business mindset and therefore struggle in business. How can these people develop business savvy? Some people believe you must be born business savvy. But our guest today, the world-famous Dr. Erickson, thinks otherwise. So that's the background for today's podcast with Dr. Erickson, professor of psychology at Florida State University. He is the world's foremost expert on experts and on how to develop expertise. He's the author of several books, most importantly among them, Being Peak. He is the person who originally wrote about the 10,000 hours of practice and expert status, although it's been taken out of context, but that's a different discussion. He has conducted extensive research with academic rigor for over 30 years. And listen to this. He has found that the brain can be rewired to extend its capabilities at any age. In other words, even an old dog can learn new tricks. We are in for a treat today. Welcome, Dr. Erickson. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and talk to you. Sorry for the long introduction, but I thought that context would help people. Well, I think that you did a good job here. You know, we've primarily been looking at how people become extremely good at various domains like playing chess or playing a musical instrument or becoming a surgeon. But I think the same kind of argument can be applied for people who want to become business people and become entrepreneurs, that there is sort of a path for most successful entrepreneurs. What we might be able to contribute here is helping other people who have not been born in business families Mm -hmm. to get sort of the same type of experience so they, you know, won't have to learn from their own failures, but they can actually learn from studying other people's problems and how they overcame them or how they avoided a certain types of problems that are frequent when people want to start a business. You're absolutely right. You made a fine distinction there between a novice practicing and failing over and over and over again and saying, gee, I'm going to hopefully learn eventually, but they never become experts. As you know, deliberate practice is a completely different thing, which we'll talk about. So first things first, what is your definition of expertise? Well, we try to avoid expertise as a term because a lot of people define expertise as being conceived or viewed as an expert by other people, because that's problematic, because research has shown that people who are viewed as experts, that once you evaluate their ability to make forecasts or make decisions, occasionally aren't any better than, you know, basically people who are not viewed as experts. So what we've done is to kind of focus in on what is it that some people can do that's desirable and basically identify those individuals who can consistently perform at a higher level than other people, and then asking the question, you know, what's different about them, and what's different about the path that they took to get to that superior performance? See, a lot of people are considered to be smart, you know, or they say, I'm smart, or so-and-so smart. How is that different from somebody who's an expert? I guess basically uh, it comes down to this idea here. How can you actually measure how smart somebody is? And I think once you think about the domains that we've looked at the most, being smart is not going to be very helpful for you if you want to be entering a chess tournament. It turns out that basically your kind of history of studying chess and basically how you actively develop now the ability of making good decisions in the domain of chess, that's critical. And basically, any kind of more generalized intelligence might actually help you when you're just a beginner and playing other beginners. But as soon as you get skilled, that skill is actually going to trump any kind of initial superiority that people had based here on their more generalized abilities. So to us, it's kind of the key idea here that in order to really be successful at a higher level, you actually have to have gone through training and actually molded now an ability to think in a way that's associated with successful performance. So are you saying that an expert chess player and a smart chess player are different? Definitely. And in fact, there's actually been research done on musicians 
chess players and other types of experts that, and when you look at skilled individuals, the individual differences in their performance, you find that, you know, general ability like IQ and other kinds of cognitive abilities don't predict individual differences among skilled players. They do actually predict when people are just starting, so they've just learned the rules. It seems that people with performing better on IQ tests are also more able to kind of, you know, get started at a slightly higher level than people who are not performing as well. But as soon as you're actually accruing experience and building up these specialized kind of support systems that allow you to think, you know, about chess positions, then these differences don't seem to play a role. Let's dig one more level deeper. So what is the difference between intelligence and smart? To be honest, I don't know exactly here how to define smarts. I think intelligence people have often measured here by designing IQ tests, and I think they were originally designed to kind of identify students that were predicted to be successful in school. And I think there's been a lot of discussion now lately here that basically the ability that makes you a good student doesn't necessarily transfer now when you're actually going into a domain like medicine or music once you reach a higher level. And I would assume that pretty much any domain, even when it comes to academia and science, people have shown here that being successful as a scientist is not correlated with the IQ test that you took in high school. So uh, the way I would prefer to think of it is whatever the IQ test is measuring is an ability here of actually being able to translate instructions into workable performance. But that kind of performance that you can attain here by just relying here on that translation, that only gets you so far. Once you want to get beyond that, now you have to acquire new kind of structures that actually will support your ability to be successful in your decision-making and thinking. When we spoke last time, I told you I've done some thinking on this. And then I went and read your research. And here is how I put it together in my head. I connected some dots. Everybody is born with ability. And to me, that's intelligence. Okay? Intelligence is an ability. Unless you have a biological problem, you're born able. You know, some are born more able, some are born less able. The second part is smartness. You can be business smart or chess smart or something else. It is always contextual. That's capability. That is the application of your ability in order to be good at some particular area. It's very contextual. So uh, to your earlier point, if you're a smart chess player, that does not make you a smart carpenter. That requires a different kind of smartness. Third thing is what you talk about as expertise is a superlative level of performance using your business smarts. In other words, a superlative business person is a person who is business smart, but who performs at an extremely high level consistently. So everybody is born able. Some develop certain capabilities. That's why not everybody is good at everything. But then some people within whatever they develop are extremely good, and they are the experts. And I would agree, you know, that if we look at something that a lot of people do, like maybe play tennis, uh, what is interesting is, you know, that pretty much anybody without, you know, any obvious handicaps 
you know, can probably play a reasonable game when they're playing against people of similar abilities. But obviously, these individuals don't develop into, you know, world-class tennis players. And I guess what our research seems to imply is, you know, you kind of start out, and, and maybe some individuals who've ha grown up in a family with a lot of emphasis on physical activity will start out a little bit better. But basically, the path now to the higher levels of national and international levels, that seems to require now something quite different, where you're just not, you know, just playing against friends and accumulate experience, which once you've reached sort of a satisfactory level where you can actually engage in playing with your friends, that doesn't seem to improve over time. It's almost like you're just maintaining a certain level of performance. To really change your performance beyond what you're currently able to do, that seems to require a particular type of practice. So that's the distinction between somebody who knows how to play tennis, meaning I know the rules of tennis, I can hit the ball, I can serve, and somebody who is world-class, as in I just won Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. Exactly, and then you have all the ones, all the ability levels in between, and I guess what we're arguing is that it, you know, you're not born a Wimbledon winner. You know, that's a process that probably takes 10 to 20 years, you know, to basically attain all these kinds of changes and basically engage in that training that will mold you to make you into the best tennis player in the world. I'm sure this is a question on many people's minds. So are you telling me that, in general, anybody can become an expert? As a scientist, that you have to be careful because it's very hard to prove that basically everyone can do it. But I think what I'm arguing is that in reviewing the evidence for reasons why people couldn't, I'm not finding any compelling evidence if we eliminate, you know, like body size. And it turns out, I think in tennis, it's an advantage to be taller. And in some sports like basketball, being a center is very, very clear that basically being tall is critical to success in that playing position. But if we exclude body size and anything that has to do with the length of bones, I'm not convinced here that we've identified things that would actually limit people from being successful if they basically are starting out now on the path that those people who eventually became successful, you know, were on for their 10 to 20 years before they actually won at the international level. So anybody could become an expert, provided they don't have any fatal handicaps or something that will prevent them from doing it. Or I would say, that, you know, scientific, we don't know of evidence that would allow you to point to a person and say, this child would not be able to be basically, you know, exceptionally good in chess or tennis or playing a musical instrument. We don't know. We haven't identified basically those kinds of aspects that could not be changed by training. And in fact, I would argue in our reviews, once people have proposed various attributes, you know, we've been able to show here that there are training that can effectively modify and change those suggesting here that there aren't sort of limits. And if you just think about, you know, something that I find interesting, look at performance in sports over the last uh, 
you know, a couple of centuries. You know, people today who are just amateurs are matching the performance of people who won, you know, Olympic gold medals in the basically late 19th century. And in virtually any domain, you can find the current level of performance of the best people is substantially higher than it used to be. So this idea here that we automatically reach some kind of limit, I don't believe that I've seen any evidence for that. And that leads me to argue that you shouldn't go around telling people that they can't succeed unless you have scientific proof that actually allows you to now show what it is that they lack that they wouldn't be able wouldn't allow them now with the right kind of teacher to reach very, very high levels of performance. Let me tie two things you said together. So one, something that inhibits them, impedes them, a handicap they have could prevent them from attaining expert status. However, those can be overcome with training, coaching, whatever, remedial efforts. Right. So, I mean, obviously, if you're blind, you're going to have a hard time succeeding as a soccer player because obviously... But once you exclude those kind of known clear deficits uh, and then add on, you know, basically the height, you know, basically how tall you're going to be... And it turns out that, you know, in gymnastics, it's actually an advantage to be very short. And the world international level gymnasts, you know, they're shorter than average. So there's all sorts of things related to height. And I'm not saying that we won't, you know, 10, 20 years from now, be able to identify genes that seems to be necessary for somebody to succeed in a domain. All I'm saying is, I don't see that current evidence. And therefore, I think You know, I want to basically make it clear that we don't have any scientific evidence. Now, a lot of people think about, you know, well, I'm 30 years old. You know, could I be a world-class tennis player if I started now? Now, I think that's an interesting question. And I think we know about the, you know, if it takes basically about 20 years for somebody as a child to basically eventually reach adult-level tennis player, you know, would somebody who starts at 30 be able to come, you know, world-class at 50? Well, we know that there are all sorts of, you know, issues relating to having the time. So if you're 30 years old and you have to make a living, you're not going to have the amount of time and the energy that would be necessary for you to focus in on becoming good at a sport. And it may be that there are certain things that happen during development that basically cannot be recreated if you're 30 years old. But what I find interesting is that today there's more and more people who kind of start, you know, instead of just saying it's impossible for me to get very good at something when I'm 30, 40, or 50. And now they're actually trying. And and I think we're going to be learning a lot from these individuals who are taking on this challenge and seeking out teachers who work with other adults and what's interesting is that we see across the board how tremendously these individuals can improve. They may not be able to be, you know, world gold medal winners, but in terms of how far they can get when they're actually working with the right kind of teacher and engaging in the appropriate training, I think that is what I want to focus in on. So now we made a very simple distinction along the way. You know, we talked about ability and capability, right? Capability is very contextual. So 
you know, you're a basically intelligent human being. And because you devoted time to gaining knowledge and skills in business, for example, right, you become a smart businessman, right? But you have a methodology how a smart businessman can become an expert businessman. That's basically, although I have to say that in that particular domain, we probably don't have yet the empirical evidence. But I think, so it's more like drawing by analogy here from our studies of surgeons, teachers, psychotherapists, and stuff like that, where we can actually now argue that it should be possible to identify those individuals who are extremely successful and then take a look at how did they become that successful and is there something that other people can learn from that path that would allow them you know, to basically shorten that kind of path towards very high level of performance by more or less benefiting from the experience that other people had and generated while they were trying to reach very successful levels. We did a survey that I told you about last time where we surveyed about 350 business people based on a hypothesis that I had, including almost 100 millionaires. And we found that while there are necessary ingredients, like you said, you need knowledge in business, skills in business, etc., and then they became successful or others didn't, we found that there were certain handicaps. For example, we found that people who had negative notions about making money, having money, having a lot of money got in the way of their success in business. There are people who are like, I'd rather be an engineer than a business person. Guess what? They did not do well as a business person. So these are some of the handicaps. We call them the silent killers. We found 13 silent killers so far that are inherent inhibitors that are resident within individuals that prevent them from succeeding. But we also found, uh, we, we believe, and you're telling me it's right, that many of these quote-unquote handicaps, you know, it's like I cannot make a five-foot person seven-foot, obvious. But there are other things which can be remedied. In other words, some of these silent killers can be managed or eliminated so that they are no longer handicaps. And now you can continue on your path to becoming an expert. What we would like to see would be that if we're taking out an individual who is handicapped by these silent killers and then basically try to look at the important decisions that they made along the way and now see how those decisions may in fact have been influenced by those kinds of attitudes that you're talking about where maybe somebody would avoid taking on a certain opportunity you know based on whatever reasons that basically somebody else with kind of a different attitude, you know, might have taken on and then been able to reap the success here of basically that effort. Yeah, I'll give you two very simple examples, questions from the actual survey. One is, what did you hear about how much money you will want to make? Now, this is what was your thinking as you were growing up. People who said, I want to make as much money as my parents did. I want to make a heck of a lot more money than my parents did. Well, I'm kind of doomed to be a poor person. Guess what? There's a high correlation between that and where they ended up because we also surveyed where they ended up. And I think that's really interesting. And, and what I would like to follow up 
if I were to have a chance to talk to these individuals, would be, you know, how did this now translate into decisions that you made about your career? Because I think it would be sort of similar, you know, if you're taking up tennis and you basically have the aspiration here of being as good as your parents, who are maybe just relatively low-level amateurs, you know, if that's your goal, then basically once you reach that level, what's the point here of going beyond that? Whereas if you, when you're young, and maybe even your parents would support that idea of, you know, how far can you get, that's going to lead you on a very different trajectory. And you know that basically just keeping playing here with your parents is not going to get you there. You're going to have to find a teacher. You're going to have to basically be part of competitions. And so it's a completely different trajectory if you have the goal here and you're talking to coaches and other individuals who have actually seen what it took for those individuals who wanted to get to basically that international level of competition. It's a concept that I call the financial thermostat. Let's say your financial thermostat is set at $100,000 a year. The way I see it, once you hit that point, it says, okay, you don't need any more money. Kind of, you start coasting, which is apparently the reason why a majority of people who win the lottery lose all of their money within three years. Their thermostat is not set high. I've interviewed successful business people. I even talked to two people who are billionaires and talked to them about this specifically. They don't have a specific number. In other words, as they make more money, they keep turning up the financial thermostat. So they don't use money as a limiter. You know, money is something everybody aspires to, but money can also be a limiter. They don't allow that to happen. They keep on turning it up. And I'm kind of associating here a little bit with academia, where, you know, a lot of people are really committed here to doing research and to discover new things. And those individuals who I think make the biggest impact they're the ones who keep looking now for new insights that would go beyond where they're at. So they're constantly challenging themselves. And this idea here that they would just keep redoing the same experiment with some small variations, that obviously has no potential for actually giving them, you know, some insights that would be exciting to other people. So basically that idea here of how you define success, I would assume for a business person, you know, the challenge and actually stretching yourself and basically being on the move here to capitalize on new opportunities. I mean, that's part of a process that's very different from somebody who decides that they're just going to be a teacher and, and maybe do an occasional experiment here with a student mm -hmm. that basically doesn't even have the ambition here of actually answering some really important questions. See, in the real world, I see a very similar analogy playing out. Many people think that getting a college degree is all they need. They say, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in X, whatever that is. I'm all set for life. What have you seen as a difference between people who keep learning new things, who keep pushing those boundaries, uh, as compared to people who don't, who are already coasting at the age of 22? <laughs> As a researcher, you know, obviously the students I work with, you know, they're committed here to try to become, you know, the best that they can be in terms of research. And and I think basically my own career and people I've talked to, you know, this idea here that when you're going in college, to me, 
that was just sort of a preparation. So basically thinking about all the skills that I might need here when I'm basically, you know, on my own here as a researcher, this is the time to learn those and basically building now kind of a skill base that I could rely on. Because once you're starting, you know, to teach as a professor, you know, your time is going to be much more limited. So when you're a student, that's a tremendous opportunity for you to get ahead and basically, you know, learn a lot of things that you would then be able to draw on as you're reaching your final position here as an academic researcher. So, so I think that basically that idea here of, you know, having a goal that goes way beyond where you're currently at, especially in our educational system, that I don't think, you know, really, you know, gives you feedback here. That's one reason why I've been very interested in professional schools like, you know, medical schools and, and basically law schools and engineering schools, because there you're actually, you know, getting closer, especially if you have a good teacher, to what it is that you're going to actually be doing as an adult. So you can actually get that feel and, and enjoyment of actually being able to, at a lower level, perform at what you want to refine. And I think that establishes a motivation where you actually see here how you your own interests are actually able to advance and, and sort of build towards your career here for the rest of your life. I remember a long time ago, I was giving a talk and somebody, you know how people ask questions out of the blue. So they said, what was the benefit of you attending MIT? Tell me only one thing. I hadn't faced that question before. And I had an instant reframe in my head. And I said, the most important thing that I learned at MIT was to learn how to learn. And I think if you are able to do that, and basically, you know, kind of that depth of understanding that I think I see with very successful students, the students that I think are almost wasting their time they're the ones who are just asking what's going to be on the test and, you know, how basically will I, with the minimum of energy, be able to get the grade that I want? Because I think, you know, research shows that when you test these individuals two, three years afterwards, after they took the course, virtually all that information is essentially not recallable and usable for them. And I think our educational system could benefit from you know, really trying to build skills that people will actually be able to use for the rest of their lives. And I think learning to learn is one of those skills. Popular media glorifies people who are successful, the achievers, the uh, experts. Although there are a very small percentage of people who try, they make everything they do seem easy and effortless. And of course, there are the consultants and experts who kind of say, yeah, 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 Bill Gates can do it, you can do it. You know, this is how Bill Gates did it. You wake up in the morning and you too will be successful. They're all selling the secret sauce, the shortcut to success, you know, like your student analogy. Have you found any ways in which to talk to these people that will get them to see that shortcuts are not the way to success? Besides, of course, them learning the hard way. What I've been doing since the publication of our book, Peak, I've been contacted by people. And, and what I've been encouraging people to do is to kind of document, you know, how they are consistently improving as they're working on some type of skill. Because I think one of the problems with our current society is that you look at these people who are 
successful and they're winning, you know, Wimbledon. But there's very little kind of attempt here to kind of demonstrate all the hours and basically all the work that actually led up to this successful performance. And, you know, and some people would say, well, you know, that's not interesting. I mean, it's much more interesting to, you know, just see what this guy is doing. And, and I think a lot of people love this idea here that magically, you know, these people just evolved. And, and that's exactly the way they want to basically be successful. And I see a lot of students spending most of their college time sampling different things to see if they're gifted at various things. And the problem is that it's very rare that people discover that they're gifted. In fact, you know, in those cases where they're maybe extra successful, I think you can actually look back on their history and find, you know, that there's a reason why they're pretty good at various things that can be explained here by their earlier development. But I think that idea here, and, and I think that's something I tell my students, is, you know, you need to kind of be in control of your own destiny. And it's much better to set a goal that basically will lead you now to invest and acquire certain types of skills. You can always change into something else if that ends up being more appealing. But the lack of even starting here on this process of developing skills, I think that is a sort of uh, really a problem that makes some of the students, once they complete college, you know, be very unprepared here for the next stage of their life. In your research, you talked about three types of practice, you know, the naive practice, purposeful practice, and deliberate practice. And you pointed out that uh, novices have very simple mental representations, which limit their ability to perform at a high level. Can you talk a little bit about that? A nice example here is the tennis. You know, you basically start playing with your peers, and you get to a point here where you can actually play games with them. And what's interesting is that it's almost like a lot of other habits, like driving a car or typing. You know, you automate it so you can basically kind of keep doing what you're doing. But if you really want to improve, you can't just do more of that. Uh, you have to identify now something that basically you can improve. So, so let's assume here that you have a problem here with your first serve in tennis. Mm -hmm. Well, instead of actually playing games, there's a more effective way for you to improve that by focusing in now on your serve and now try to control it and maybe increase its speed and and, and basically how much spin you have on the ball and so on. Basically, we call that second thing where you're actually doing this training activity that really isn't now part of playing with your friends. It's something that you have to do by yourself, typically. You have to have a lot of balls and, in order to be able to get in a lot of serves without having to go and, uh, you know, get the ball every time you serve it. So basically, you can actually now accumulate a lot of practice where you get immediate feedback here on the results, and that is going to improve. And we call that purposeful practice. And it turns out that in some domains, you can actually keep improving substantially by, you know, just trying to improve things that you see that you're not doing as well as you want. But we argue that there is sort of an even better option, and that is one that we refer to as deliberate practice where you actually, sometimes even when you're actually starting to play, 
or getting a teacher, a coach, because that coach will actually help you develop the fundamentals of how you stand and basically how you get most control here over your forehand and so on. And by basically learning to do it the right way, you're basically on a different trajectory than most of the kids who learn it by themselves. Because very often when they start working with a teacher, that teacher will tell them, you know, if you're going to keep hitting it this way, you're really not going to be able to attain the control that other people who are actually doing it using the right fundamentals. And that teacher can also then, you know, pace yourself so you identify changes that are appropriate for your current level. So it's a little bit like building a house, you know. If you start out with no foundation, you're going to have a really hard time building a three-story building. If you're going to plan to do a three-story building, well, then you start with a very different type of foundation, and then you add on to that, and then basically you can have now a successful building with three stories. But if you start building a hut, you know, and then you just try to put things on top of it, you're not going to be very successful. So I've heard three things so far. One is have a very specific goal to make a commitment to it. Many people don't commit because they chase every shiny object that walks by, some new formula for success, right? Third thing is uh, intense focus, which is, I think, part of your framework, concentration with no distraction. Then the fourth piece you mentioned was the need for a coach. This one is a bit puzzling to me. In your tennis analogy, it makes absolute sense. My first serve is bad. I need to get a coach who can help me with the serve. A presumption there is that the person that I hired as my coach knows how good serves ought to be made. What I find in business is, you know, there are lots and lots of business coaches. I'm sure, you know, you go and do business coach on uh, one of the search engines and you'll, you'll get hundred thousands of pages. Many people, for example, who are former executives at Fortune 500 companies become executive coaches and say, I was the vice president of X at uh, AT&T. And now I'm qualified to advise you, Dr. Erickson, on how to be a good entrepreneur. And I go, ah! what, what, what does a guy who works for a Fortune 500 company know about coaching an entrepreneur? Is there a specific kind of coach that makes the most sense? When we talk about teachers, we actually talk about individuals who have sort of a associated science and they basically have experience. So one way that if you want to pick a good tennis coach, you may ask, you know, how many of this previous students of this coach, you know, how successful did they get? And did this coach actually work with people who started out at about my level? And were they able now to help these individual reach success? Now, a lot of teachers that are around for all sorts of things, they basically are just, you know, claiming here to be teachers without really providing that evidence that they actually have helped you know, 90% of their students reach a targeted level. In music, for example, I guess, you know, it took several hundred years to kind of develop a curriculum that basically built with increasing difficulty so you would actually be able to reach the highest levels of mastery of various musical instruments. Now, when it comes to business, if somebody was interested here and actually documenting how they were able to help individuals, you know, succeed. And I think when it comes to entrepreneurs, there is kind of a growing science where people actually are 
trying to collect information about, you know, what are some of the things that more successful entrepreneurs were doing and, and to what extent would you actually be able to kind of provide them now with a learning environment where they can actually learn, you know, without having to basically be failing and having all the problems here of investing and it takes a long time to start a company and have it fail. If you could basically have an experience here of making business decisions and then see whether you would be able to foresee potential problems here with certain business ventures based here on historical records where we actually know what happened with these companies, you know, you could basically, you know, go through and make judgment here about business opportunities, maybe 40, 50 of them in an afternoon, and actually, in some sense, now learn to see whether you actually would be able to anticipate which ones were successful and to what extent, you know, there was problems that basically, you know, one could have foreseen and therefore, you know, would have helped individuals avoid these types of opportunities. So you're talking about something like a business simulation. Right. So so basically, I guess it's in medicine, you know, let's assume here that you actually look at x-rays. Now, the problem is that when people look at x-rays, they don't know what the correct answer is, right? Uh, so basically, you know, you do your yeah. best, and then maybe it takes a couple of months here before people really know here if there was a cancer or if there was some other kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Instead, now build a library where basically you collect old cases. So now you can actually take a look at that same x-ray, make a diagnosis, and then immediately you can get feedback about what the correctness was of that diagnosis. So now you can actually so much more effectively learn than if you actually have to wait, you know, three months to know basically what the outcome was. So building up kind of library of cases. And I would assume here we've been talking to people here about you know, basically negotiating plea deals for lawyers where you would actually have actual cases where you would in some sense use old ones so you would actually be able to see here what actually did happen if they went to court or not. And uh, I would assume here that you could do similar things. They have that in business school. They're called business cases. Right. But, But I think the problem with those are they're not basically made into kind of capturing that decision that you have to make and then basically that you get feedback because at least most of the cases that I've seen, they're kind of picked more to stimulate discussion than basically in some ways using them to see whether people could foresee potential problems with various situations. Because if you want to have a quick feedback loop, you don't want to spend, you know, four hours on a particular case. You would probably want to have a much kind of briefer thing where you would be able to test your ability to see uh, potential problems that would be associated with a business decision to go ahead with a certain opportunity. I'm having difficulty making that distinction because the way I see business cases, they take an actual situation that did happen in the past. They describe it in fair detail. Obviously, students discuss it with a professor who provides feedback and professor generally knows what actually happened, and then ask the students to go look at different options, come back and discuss it, and make certain decisions along the way. You're saying that's not quite it. I would argue that based on my knowledge, and now I'm not an expert, I've not been teaching business courses, so I don't know, but 
when I've been reading these cases, the objective is more to kind of use it as a way of discussing a real case as opposed to identifying cases where actually there was a problem. And just imagine here that there was a financing problem with certain types of business opportunities. And the question is, you know, if you have a number of cases here that basically have similar types of financing problems, I believe that you could actually present those and then you could in some ways much more targetedly, you know, identify and see whether people actually would be aware of those problems. So when they encounter an opportunity, they would basically have a much better way of assessing here whether financing would be, you know, an issue that might possibly interfere okay. with success. So what you're saying is bite-sized descriptions of a problem and say, what would you do? Right. So basically you would have, you know, the general context of the case, but you would have focus so you could actually get more direct feedback because in some sense by making it targeted, you would hopefully select cases where there was basically a lot of information here about what kinds of attempts they made to finance it and why they failed and so on. So you would basically build up a more systematic so once people have made a commitment here to either see that they didn't see any financing problems or they saw this problem, then you would actually present them with a much richer description here of what the ecology was and why certain types of options failed. And in my experience, a lot of the business cases, you know, they are a little bit more less, you know, it's not like you're exploring the case to kind of help future people figure out here what the opportunities might have been and why they didn't work. But this is sort of more talking about possibilities. But but in medicine, I think, you know, they've been pretty successful. And there they've gone away from these kind of typical cases that are constructed by teachers to be prototypical cases. And they may be good introductions. But at some point, I believe it's really critical that you have actual patients with actual Record, so you would be able to see now, you know, brain imaging or whatever it is that ultimately, you know, provided the feedback that would allow you now to see here why a certain type of procedure might not have been the best possible. You bring up a good point. On TV, they have lots of doctor shows, right? You know how the uh, residents go on rounds with their teachers, whatever they're called, you know, the professors, teaching professors at teaching hospitals where they actually go to real clients, live clients, who have a problem right here, right now. And then the professor says, so, Dr. Erickson, look at his x-ray. What do you think is the problem with him? And you say something, and you get feedback immediately, and you learn. And I think that's really great. The one limitation, though, let's assume now that the teaching professor was actually incorrect in their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So when you're walking around to actual patients, you know, everyone is trying to do their best, mm-hmm. but we know from basically research that they may be only correct, say, for certain types of cases and 80% of the time. Yeah. So in some sense, if you really wanted to help the students and also continuing doctors basically improve their skills, you would like to go beyond basically what the teaching professors think it is and then actually you know, provide that kind of very accurate feedback about what the ultimate diagnosis was. I don't know much about that space, but I believe doctors periodically get together and look at interesting cases and say, I did this, I did that. And then, you know, the doctors in the audience 
uh, say, well, you know, you should have, have you tried this? Or why didn't you try this, you know? And what happened to the patient? I think they do that, but I don't know what that's called. I'm not very uh, familiar. Well, you know, I mean, they have these morbidity mortality conferences when there's basically a bad outcome, Where and sometimes they talk about other cases as well. But essentially, if there was a bad outcome, you know, they would get together and try to understand here, you know, what happened and how would this possibly be avoided in the future. But to me, if you really wanted to train people so you train their decision-making, you need to kind of construct these decision-making situations with time limits and, and basically all the kind of constraints that are there as mm -hmm. opposed to cases where they're integrating maybe information that was collected over three months. Because in some sense, if you wanted to avoid, you know, this outcome very early on, you would need to restrict yourself to the information that was available or identify the information that should have been available but was never collected. Mm -hmm. In other words, make it real. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and I think once you get to that point where people agree that somebody who is consistently better making decisions in these cases, you know, this is, should be associated with success in the real world. And if it's not, you know, then there's something mysterious. And I think that's, you know, we try to identify the successful individuals and then find ways here to capture their performance in the lab. So like, for example, in chess, you can actually give people chess positions where they only have to do the next move. And the ability here of actually picking the best move for chess positions, and that takes about 20 minutes, is actually very highly correlated with your tournament success. So that means that you kind of capture now the essence here of being a good chess player, because if you pick situations that have a good option and several worse options, then basically a collection of those is going to be very diagnostic. And then you can actually have them think out loud when they're making their movement selection. So we can actually see what is the thinking here of an individual who is actually, you know, a world-class chess player? How is that different from somebody who is now trying to select the best move for somebody who is a good club-level player? The last part of your deliberate practice methodology says frequently get out of your comfort zone. I remember one of the experiments you ran, uh, you had uh, a student remember a certain number of digits, and if he got, uh, you know, let's say 10 digits right, you would give him the 11th digit, but if he got that wrong, you didn't pull him back to the 10-digit problem, but to a 9-digit problem. What was the thinking there? If you want to improve, so you actually want to do something that you can't do reliably, you want to actually increase the difficulty level. And I think if you look at, for example, musical training, there's this curriculum where they're introducing increasingly more complex techniques, and then they ask you to play at increasingly higher tempos. So basically, you're constantly, during practice, working on things that you can't do, but you're actually working that by setting goals and then gradually attaining these goals. And once you attain the goals, then you shift on to new goals. And I think that's true, you know, in all sorts of domains, that those people who are actually 
the best performers, they're the ones who are going out looking for challenging cases or how they basically would be able to improve the outcome of other cases that other people would have used very conventional ways of addressing. So that idea here of basically testing yourself by trying to do something that is just barely more difficult, because obviously if you're trying to do something where you're assured of being unsuccessful, that's not going to allow you here to gradually improve. But if you have something that is within reach, but actually requires you now to make small adjustments, that's going to allow you now to keep, you know, getting better over time. So it's kind of like whatever you're currently capable of plus some. Right. And I actually, it reminds me, I talked to a coach who coached a cricket team in South Africa. And he basically had his players, when they were throwing the ball to each other, that as soon as they felt that basically, you know, the difficulty level of receiving the ball was, you know, they felt comfortable, they would raise their hands and say, you know, I need more challenge. And then basically the coach or other individuals would now actually increase the difficulty level. So basically they were constantly at that level of being challenged. And I would say that similar kinds of behaviors I've seen, and often they're self-motivated where people deliberately are seeking out, you know, like in if you're a surgeon, you're looking at a case here that maybe other people would say, you know, that's impossible. And then basically, if it's a case here where, you know, the rewards are such that basically trying something with an uncertain outcome would be better than doing nothing, you know, these individuals would now take on that difficult case. And that's how basically the skill level is improving. And I think that's related to the point I made earlier about over time, what people today are able to do is just vastly superior to what they could do 50, 100 years ago. And that, I think, is very closely related to the idea of actually stretching yourself to go beyond what you currently can do and then figuring out effective training methods that allows you to improve your performance. Which kind of begs a very natural thing that keeps popping into my head. Uh, you studied two students in your Carnegie Mellon experiment, right? Uh-huh. One guy got to, I think he could remember 75 digits in a continuous digit, and the next guy did dramatically better than that guy, right? Uh, irrespective of whatever number they did, both of them were self-selected. In other words, they said, Dr. Erickson, I, I, I'll, I'll volunteer for this study. And therefore, they kept wanting to improve themselves. There are many people in business who say they want to improve, but is there a way that you found that you could motivate these people to want to constantly keep pushing the envelope, getting out of their comfort zone, even if it's one tiny step at a time? I think the key here is to actually show people a type of training where you actually can adjust the difficulty level. So let's assume here that you have this library with 10,000 business cases. Basically, there are similar things in chess where basically you have chess positions where making the right move is more difficult as reflected here about what kind of chess rating do you need in order to be able to successfully find the best move for that position. And I think there are ways, but the key here is that you need to give them 
some activity that would actually allow them now to select something that is a little bit more difficult than they basically would be successful in doing. The only way that I can directly see here would be, you know, to have that library of cases and then actually check here whether they could foresee difficulties with certain types of ventures and then basically use that as a feedback loop to determine what kind of difficulty level, you know, would be appropriate for them and then actually find cases that are slightly more difficult that would allow one now to actually change the way you're thinking so you would actually be more successful. In part two of my conversation with Dr. Anders Ericsson, you will hear us discussing what is the routine for becoming an expert. Remember that Dr. Ericsson is perhaps the world's expert on how to become an expert. Two, how could you develop rituals for success? You know, once you do something, then it becomes a habit. Once you stitch a bunch of habits together, they become rituals. And once you have rituals that work on a particular objective, in this case, your success in business, it could help you. So how do you develop rituals? Then why do you need to learn and practice and develop your own techniques rather than simply copying somebody all the time in order to become an expert yourself? Then the last item there is how to become a homo exorcist. A Homo exorcist is a practicing human being so that you can become an expert yourself. Have you found in your experience that there are certain kinds of people who are better suited, I hate to use that word loosely, better suited to become experts than others? I would basically argue here that in order to be able to kind of invest and actually work and try to, you know, take on challenging cases as opposed to cases that, you know, are simple. That's, I think, associated with an, a development of habit. So if we look at musicians and chess players that we've looked at, what they tend to do is that they have a pretty rigid schedule here where they every day, you know, would spend two, three hours in the morning basically engaging in these training activities. And basically, they realize that there's kind of a limit, you know, to how much they can push themselves. So then the rest of the day, they would be doing other things that would be much less demanding. But I think that idea here of, because we know that a lot of people find it challenging to do things that are demanding. So what you want to do is to avoid this decision here about, you know, people asking, you know, do I enjoy this or not? You know, you just start in the morning and then basically you engage in it and then you have a real sense of satisfaction here once you are done with your training and you would now move on to do other things. So, for example, authors are also basically spending two or three hours in the morning writing and the rest of the day they basically use it to relax and basically recuperate and making sure that they get enough sleep. So, the next morning, they would be able to perform at their highest level. Going back full circle, we're trying to get more people to understand that they need to develop this business mindset. Whether they choose to do it at a novice level or a higher level, not necessarily all the way, the deliberate practice, naive practice, the purposeful and then deliberate. They may not all become experts, but if they followed this four-step methodology you have, they can get better from wherever they are right now. Right, and I think it would be really interesting to kind of stimulate 
more types of activities that would involve business and new kind of initiatives, even at the high school level and college level, where actually you would get students involved in these activities and finding, seeking out possible products that they could generate and then provide now with learning opportunities and also teachers and coaches that could actually support their development here at smaller scale. Because I think, you know, it's once you look at these other domains, there is kind of a trajectory here where you kind of start out, you know, and, and I think when it comes to financing and, and figuring out how you would be able to reach a given audience, I think there are all sorts of methods that the vast majority of individuals just don't know. So even if they have a good idea and are motivated here to try to do it, they don't really aren't aware of, of the kind of steps that they would need to take to be able to, you know, have a chance here to a successful attempt. So if there was a framework and a methodology that can guide them and they had some kind of an expert coach, you know, the way you describe the coach. Right. And and actually, I've been talking to some private schools, the Nueva School in San Francisco and some other ones. And there, they actually allow students in high school to basically identify something that they want to do. And then the school is actually finding a teacher that would allow a given student now to engage in a project that basically, you know, I guess often would have some financial implications. And I think basically that struck me as a really interesting opportunity that maybe if one is thinking about it, you know, could be applied here and made available to a much larger group of students. Switching gears a little bit, in your research finding, you said that novices have very simple mental representations. Is that the same thing as mental models? What is a mental representation? So if we take something like, you know, driving a car, I would argue that, you know, People actually learn how to do it, and then eventually, you know, they would be driving with their parents and maybe with a driving instructor. But what's interesting is that most of our habitual activities, people want to minimize the effort that's involved. And essentially, when you actually drive, it becomes very automatic, and you basically are behaving in certain ways. And it's interesting when people get surprised by a snowstorm and are not you know, used to snow, they're basically uh, in real jeopardy because they don't know how to handle and basically be driving in a safe manner. So we would argue that it's kind of almost like a automatic kind of effect here of once you do things over and over, you try to find the most simplest way that you can actually execute that type of activity. So if you actually ask somebody, you know, when they're driving to close their eyes, hopefully they're standing still at the time, and see what they're paying attention to. And basically what I would argue is you're likely to find a very rudimentary description here of basically where they are and basically what all the other cars around them are about to do. And what we're finding is that the same thing would hold true for people who play various sports, team sports on an amateur level, but what's interesting is that as you get more skilled, people actually develop a much better representation here of what other players are doing, the teammates and the opposing players. And they also are able to read cues about what people are about to do. 
So that actually provides now these more skilled players a much better foundation here for making decisions if they were to get the ball. What should they be doing with the ball to maximize the opportunity to you know, have a positive outcome or maybe even scoring? So basically, they take all of the cues and the data from the external environment and integrate them in a certain way, and that's the mental representation, that enables them to make decisions faster. Exactly, and you can actually get information about that mental representation of maybe stopping them and, and shutting off basically the visual input and then ask them to recall here what is actually going on outside of them. And what you find is that the more skilled individuals will be able to give a much more accurate picture of what's happening outside of you suggesting that they have that in their brain because once you cut off the visual input, that's the place where that information has to come from. In the business world, there are many people, you know, Warren Buffett's right-hand guy is a guy called Charlie Munger. He talks a lot about mental models. It's uh, very similar in description to what uh, you just described. See, what I've found in looking at people is I've developed a little acronym for myself, LAPHR, L-A-P-H-R. So if you learn something new, you need to first act it out. You need to practice it. Only then does it kind of become real in your head. Then if it's something you want to take on or include in your repertoire, you need to develop a habit of doing that. That's the H. And then if you get a series of these habits, so like say in your case, driving a car, Uh, Let's say you learn a new method for looking in your blind spot. You kind of have to do it a couple of times and you practice it while you're driving and then make it a habit and say, uh, you know, I'm going to look over my right shoulder for one second every 50 feet and making this up. And then you need to weave it into a ritual where you say, anytime I'm driving every 50 feet, I'm going to look over my right shoulder or Every time I want to change lanes, I'm going to look over my right shoulder. And then at that point, it becomes a ritual, which is a combination of habits every time you change your lane. And it started with the L, L-A-P-H-R. You know, I think that makes tremendous sense. And, and I guess the only thing I would possibly add is that as you get more skilled, it's more a matter of basically making modifications and repairs to your mental representations. For example, if you find now that in certain cases here where your vision is blocked, you know, that you would be reminded here that there could be somebody walking out here. And Mm. and that's actually something that they've demonstrated now with emergency uh, drivers who are, you know, ambulance drivers, that they have developed now that skill of basically being able to anticipate problems far more accurately than basically average drivers who are not basically paying attention to what could possibly be basically coming out behind a vehicle or some obstructing object. Which kind of brings me to another very interesting thing I read in your research. Uh, You know, at Carnegie Mellon, you studied two students. You had two subjects. The first guy was a greenfield. He started from scratch. He only had seven digits, I think, and then went up to, I think, 75, right? 82, but who's counting? (laughs) Okay, 82. Okay. See, my point is, the second guy who came in, I forget his name, when he came in, he had the benefit of talking to the first guy, and he said, here are some techniques that I used in order to remember more digits. 
But the most interesting thing I found was the second guy got up to a certain number of digits. I forget what it is, 25 or something like that. And then he hit a wall. And then he figured out his own way of looking at the problem or extending the problem or getting out of the comfort zone. I don't know what you call it. And then he took off and he exceeded 82. Yeah, he basically eventually got over 100. And I think basically, I guess my point would be that given we collected, you know, protocols after each trial, we were able to kind of monitor how the two individuals, how they actually changed the way they were encoding the information to be able to kind of encode it more effectively in long-term memory so they would be able to recall it. They weren't just rehearsing digits. They were actively constructing ways to represent these numbers so they would actually be able to, you know, retrieve the information and then translate it into numbers so they could actually reproduce the presented sequence of random digits. What is interesting is that today, I guess the current record is around 500 digits that people can actually, you know, when they're presented one per second, reproduce. Now, the new generation of individuals, I would argue, are relying more on deliberate practice because they actually studied with memory teachers. So they, instead of doing what our subjects were doing, they had to start out at seven digits and then incrementally get better and better. They could actually come up with a system that they translate each of the two-digit numbers into images and then maybe constructed combinations of two images to create now unique images for uh, four-digit combinations. And then they also relied on a very different system for storing these images. And I guess I would argue that that's just proof here that if you actually learn the correct fundamentals, you may in fact be able to get further than if you're more or less doing what our two subjects were doing. You know, they were trying to figure it out for themselves and we didn't know what was possible. So we certainly couldn't, you know, guide them as to what they should be doing. the thing that I found interesting, a parallel that I drew. The first guy got to 82 and the second guy hit the wall, but then he had to come up with his own mental representation and then he was able to you know, blow past 82. Would that indicate that there are limits to role modeling? In other words, you are an excellent role model of a successful businessman and I say, I want to model myself, my behaviors, my beliefs, my values, my practices, similar to what Dr. Erickson does. But if I did that, I would only get to a certain level of success, which is limited, until I come up with my own variations or my own mental representations, which will then help me to propel much higher, much farther. I would argue that we probably don't know the answer to that question. I think looking at what structures they eventually relied on in order to, you know, remember these long sequences, I think if you look at them from a higher level, they're very similar in the sense that, you know, they use grouping of uh, three and four digit groups, and they basically built these hierarchical systems in order to memorize now what order their groups were. I think we're just at the beginning here of trying to understand what actually people who are exceptional are doing. 
And I think the point that I would want to emphasize is instead of just trying to rehearse the digits to kind of improve now your ability to report them back, what our subjects were doing was fundamentally different. They actually tried to store them now in long-term memory that we basically don't really know of any very clear limitations for. And that was the key here. And that's the sort of the general principle that we see for experts, how they actually develop now a superior performance in a particular domain with particular materials. And, and that gets back to what we started out talking about, how individuals can be exceptional in chess, but basically once you give them some other kind of task domain that they're unfamiliar with, you know, they're no different from novices. What is long-term memory? Well, basically in psychology, you differentiate here between the kind of information that you can kind of hold on to that is sort of in attention or that you can kind of keep rehearsing. And that's quite limited. So people would say, you know, about a phone number, so seven digits. Long-term memory would be that kind of information that once you try to recall something, say at the end of a training session, that basically represents now information that was stored more permanently in your memory. And one of the interesting things with the memory experiment that we talked about, how you train people to get better at, you know, repeating back random sequences of numbers, read one per second, was that these individuals could then recall almost all of the digits that had been presented as being part now of different trials. So they could recall maybe 300 digits that were, you know, part of different sequences of different lengths at the end, suggesting here that they were really storing things more permanently in their memory than this short-term memory where you kind of just hold on to information and once you stop thinking about it, it's essentially gone. I keep going back to the two-student memory experiment. If, if this uh, guy could uh, model and uh, emulate the techniques of the first guy, the second guy could do that of the first guy, he should have been easily able to get to 82 simply based uh, simply upon the first guy's model. I think that's a really that's a good, good point. point. I believe that essentially there's a uh, limit here on what you can communicate. So you can actually give more of a direction. But when it comes to the actual real-time task of actually now converting digits and, when, and what these individuals both were using was making relationships between, say, a three-digit group and a running time for races in a way that make it distinctive and retrievable from long-term memory. So, for example, 412 could be, you know, four minutes and 12 seconds a mile time. That is, you know, very fast. So the argument that we would make is that building these conceptual structures where you would be able to encode it and also, you know, make it so unique that you don't basically had interference here from other sequences in the same training session, that's the real challenge. And, and I would argue that any amount of instruction basically would not allow somebody to basically immediately be able to get to 80 digits. I think it's a little bit more sort of, if you think about, you know, running a 5K race, you can basically spend lecture to your individuals here, you know, for hours, maybe three weeks about what they should be doing. And then once they get out on the track, I don't think that there's going to be a huge difference here 
they're going to actually have to engage in the training to make now these physiological changes that are necessary for them to be able to run fast. So basically, I would argue that there may be not that kind of shortcut that we would like in, in the same way that there is a shortcut. If there's a factual piece of information, somebody would tell you, and now you have that piece. When you're building uh, when you're skill, build- it's more something that has to be built up like a house. So if you think about the house analogy, you know, you could tell people about how to build a house, but basically they're going to have to build their own house, and it's going to take a lot of time, even if they have the knowledge about how to put it together step by step. And it'll perhaps take longer as well. Basically, I, I think there is a limiting factor. Now, I do agree that if you basically are working on the wrong strategy, then we know that you can basically spend tremendous amount of time without making improvement. But if you're exploring a workable strategy, there's still going to have to be that investment in building the skill that allow you to do the thought processes under the real-time constraints of the task. The limits of role modeling and uh, good advice on not seeking shortcuts and expecting 100% results. Yeah, and, and I think the one thing that I would like to emphasize is this idea that if we believe in this idea of skill, you need to have those practice opportunities. And I would argue that a lot in education is sort of getting lectures, but not basically that chance of applying it so you can actually build up these mental representations that allow you to, in real time, now perform at a higher level and generate basically these mental representations of your current situation, so you basically are able to select the best action in the uh, situation in the, that you face. That's actually even more acute in the business realm, because if I have to give you a pick a number, $50,000, so that you can go and make some decisions and uh, succeed or fail, I'm gambling $50,000. So you need to come up with... Uh, Credible uh, scenarios yeah. or situations or constructs which allow people to uh, practice and learn. Exactly, and I, and I think that's really fascinating. And it would seem to me that if we could help people avoid, you know, the frustrations here of making mistakes that could have been avoided with the better training, I think there's a lot of value, and and both for individuals as well as our society. I guess the thing I'm picking up here is people can become experts through extended, deliberate practice, focused practice, repeated action, and they need to go beyond their comfort zone. And I think you coined the term in the book, you called them, you said, in addition to being homo sapiens or homo erectus, human beings need to become homo exorcists. Right. You know, that idea here that you can actually change. I think is something that, especially when we can provide now teachers who can demonstrate how other individuals like yourself have been able to reach, you know, the level that you want to reach. I think that's just incredibly motivating. And the process here of providing these opportunities, I think we're going to be learning more about how we can help people, you know, to effectively change themselves and become more successful. So, Homo. Exorcism means a practicing human being, correct? 
exactly that a modifiable person uh, that you are you know a human who can modify your own abilities and i guess what we are emphasizing is you don't have to just figure out how to change yourself you know by finding a teacher with the right kind of credentials who've shown that they've been able to help other individuals improve that would seem to be the best recommendation that we could come up with find a good teacher who has been there done it understands the roadmap and who can guide you through the process or guide you on the journey exactly and and i think basically that idea here of explicating what you're thinking uh so the teacher can actually identify more directly here uh things that you should be considering that you didn't or identify weaknesses that might actually suggest that you should be working on a particular set of cases that would allow you now to develop that particular aspect of your decision making excellent dr erickson many thanks for taking time to come on uh, business thinking radio i enjoyed our discussion and look forward to having you back as more and more people listen to this and become experts well i would love that and and maybe we could interest somebody to build up that kind of library to allow people to practice particular aspects of decision making when it comes to making judgments here about investing in certain types of projects yeah i will certainly look into that thanks for listening to business thinking radio if you'd like to comment on this episode please send an email to podcast@businessthinking.com this is ram ayer signing off thank you for listening to the ram ayer podcast Every week we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Iyer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts@mitramiyer.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramaya.com/podcasts or find the Ram Aya podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded.